Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Well, my favorite sport is soccer. Some of you guys know that. I've been playing uh, for about 30 years, since I was five years old. I'm 36. I'm still playing. My wife pokes fun at me just a little bit. Uh, for, for going strong. There's usually a couple leagues throughout the year that I'm, I'm training hard. I got a diet regimen. Um, my wife bought me a massage gun and uh, she makes sure there's ibuprofen, a lot of that. And, but I have to stay in shape because usually I like to play the college kids and show them who's boss. Waiting for the rematch. Waiting for the rematch. You know who I'm talking to? All right. Huge fan. Love sports. Love soccer. And in 20, 2017 was one of the most depressing days of, uh, uh, as being a soccer fan, October 17th, because on that day, the U.S. men's national team failed to qualify for the World Cup. And if you're a soccer fan, you're a World Cup fan, you know you spend four years preparing for it. They missed out, and then there was another four years and they, they, they qualified this turn time around, which is amazing. And so if you're a soccer fan, you just, you're, you, you're so excited. You're jazzed. You're pumped up for uh, what's going to be happening. Now, if you're a sports fan in general, you know that there's passion involved. You know that there's affection. There's adoration. If you were a Carolina fan, you went from tears of joy on one night to tears of lament just couple of nights later, if you're an ABC fan, anyone but Carolina fan, it was the flip, right? It was the, the complete opposite, right? We, we, we get this as people who love sports. But it's not just sports. It's the entertainment. It's the, the uh, artist, creative artist industry. We get captivated by actors or our favorite bands or favorite musicians. We're captivated. Our affections are captivated. Our wallets can sometimes be captivated by the sports entertainment industry. And then you have, of course, you have even in the arena of politics, even the arena of politics or social justice moves, you can have thousands of people showing up for a rally who were joyously declaring their hope and, 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 and desire to see this certain figure bring about lasting change. Or maybe you're you know, one of tens of thousands who are part of a, a protest, a movement, and you're, you're emotionally pouring out your heart to see change. My point in sharing all of, all of this is that we are very, very affectionate creatures. We're passionate people. We're all worshipers. We are all worshipers, and this is why it matters, because the great battle, the greatest battle of all time, the greatest conflict in all of history is the battle for the human heart. Who will possess our affections? Who will get our loyalty and devotion? Even if you're the most staunch atheist and you deny any divine deity, you're, you're still going to worship someone or something. The truth is we are all worshipers. And because the, the human heart is, is made and designed to marvel and to give praise and to worship, we have a choice. And I, I quote, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing Paul in the first chapter of Romans 
He says, you have a choice. You can offer to God the thanksgiving and the honor that is due the creator, or you can suppress the truth and worship and serve the creation. And we have a choice. And that brings us to Palm Sunday. This is the the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and it's one of the most illustrative stories in all of the Gospels. It happens to be also the one of the few stories that's repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's one of the most illustrative stories in all of the New Testament about about worship. It's about praise. It's about affection. And it's powerful because you have a multitude of witnesses within the story trying to declare to us who Jesus is. You have the crowds declaring, this is Jesus. You have the disciples declaring, this is Jesus. You have even, and we'll see this in a little bit, you have even like the gospel writers themselves. You have Matthew, you have Luke inserting themselves going, yeah, yeah, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And then, of course, we have Jesus himself revealing, this is who I am. Picture like this, it's a surround sound system in concert together declaring, this is who Jesus is. Yes, this is a story of worship and how people offer their worship or show their affections, but it's equally, if not more, about the object of worship. We're going to be looking at what people are doing, what is the donkey belt, what's the palm branches, the acts of worship, but make no mistake, this story is about Jesus, our glorious King. That's what this whole story is about. And there are times on Sunday mornings when I believe that God loves to minister to his kids. If you were here last week, we talked all about the the spirit of adoption. It was a, a sermon, it was a passage about how much God loves us. And there are times, and we need to have a lot of times, where we just receive the love of God. We need it. We need that. But I believe there are some times, and there's probably a lot more than we realize, there are times when all we have to do, all we really need to do is just look at Jesus and adore him for who he is. Not just what we can get from him. And he loves us so much and he wants to pour out his love. He, he, that's who he is. But there are times when if we just adore him and we just worship him, if you notice the, the songs we sung this morning were really about Just you, Jesus. We adore you, Jesus. You deserve it all, God. And the interesting thing is when we get our eyes off ourselves and just behold him, one of the side effects, one of the glorious redemptive side effects is that we become like him. He actually does heal us in those moments when we're just looking at Jesus. And so this, this sermon is, is not, it doesn't have a lot of like personal stories or illustrations. I, I really just want us to look at Jesus. One of the goals this morning, really the main goal is not that you could walk away from here going, wow, that's a, a great sermon that, you know, like I, I really feel like God loves me and those things are important, but you'd, you'd walk away from here going, I love Jesus more. He's so worthy. He's so deserving of it all. There's a prayer in Ephesians 1, and I want to pray this right now. Um, If you could close your eyes and just pray with me. Lord, I pray, as Paul prayed, 
Lord, may you reveal yourself to our human hearts that we would know you. We want to know you this morning, Jesus. May you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Yes, God. Yes, Lord. Amen. All right. We're going to open up our Bibles. They'll, of course, be uh, on the screen. But let's turn to Matthew 21, chapter 21, verses 1. We're going to start there. And again, the story's in each of the Gospels, but we're going to primarily be in Matthew. We may jump around a little bit here and there to the other accounts. But we're starting in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Continuing on, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkeys and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and all that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is Jesus, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So if you're, if you're taking notes, here's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through four revelations of who Jesus is. Four ways in which Jesus reveals himself to us as the king, our king. Number one, Jesus is our courageous king. He's our courageous king. How is he the courageous king? Let's first look at verse one. Where is Jesus going to? Where's he going? He's going, he's going to Jerusalem, literally. He's going to the city of Jerusalem. And anytime you hear the word Jerusalem, anywhere you read it in the Bible, there needs to be a little like buzzard that goes off in your head because this is the most important city in all of the Bible. It's mentioned over 800 times, the city of Jerusalem. King David in Psalm 48 calls this city the city of our great king. The prophet uh, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, referring to Jerusalem, calls it the throne of the Lord. The nations of the earth will be gathered to behold the literal kingdom of God on earth. It's, it, it's like Asgard for the Avengers. It's Gondor from Lord of the Rings, but it's even greater. It's the most important city in the, the whole universe. But it's not just that it's a great city that's revealing his courage. It's why he's going there that makes him so courageous. On three separate occasions, on three separate occasions, Jesus tells his disciples that I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I'm going to raise again. Matthew 16, 21, for instance, this, this is one of them. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Jesus is, he's saying like, this is it. Like he's three years of ministry, generations of prophecy are about to be fulfilled. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that every step closer to Jerusalem was one step closer to his death. Every step closer as he's on that donkey, every step closer was one step closer to him suffering for the sins of the world. Every step closer was one step closer to him experiencing the shame and the rejection of the penalty of our sins. It was one step closer to him having his father turn away from him on the cross to, so that he would bear the full weight, full weight of the unrighteousness of our sins. Every step closer to Jerusalem, he knows, Jesus knows what is coming. We can begin to imagine the physical agony of the cross, but can you begin to imagine all the spiritual and even emotional implications of Jesus on the cross? Bearing the weight, the full weight of all humanity's guilt. When I am faced with difficult, challenging, fearful, sacrificing situations or uh, uh, relationships or circumstances, my first instinct and usually my eventual response, it's to turn back. It's, it's, it's to find an easy way. It's to avoid the, 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 the narrow. It's to seek safety. It's to find out what is easy, but not Jesus. When faced with the ultimate torture and agony, he drew near to the cross. He drew near. People who, who are love sports, they get amazed when like a, a, a sports world record is, is broken. We, when we, we witness the, the endurance or the, the overcoming of impossibilities of, of, you know, this athlete or that athlete. I know those who are, if you're familiar with the, you know, the, the legend of Michael Jordan, there's this story where in, in one of the final games of, uh, I, I can't remember which championship game it was, but he gets sick. They call it the flu game. He gets, he gets either, it's either a stomach virus or he gets sick, but there's this, he, he, can he play, can he not play, who knows, but he shows out, he, he comes out there anyway, he puts the team on his back, and they win the game, of course, we know he wins the series, and it all feeds into the, the legend of who he is, right? Like we, we get that with sports figures, uh, Tiger Woods was one of them where, one of the greatest golfers, he he wins all these majors, and then there's this period of several years where he has all these surgeries, and, and they, they wonder if he's ever going to win another one. And he comes back for the Masters, and you know after all of this pain, all these surgeries, and he just perseveres through, and he endures through, and he wins another Masters. And the whole sports world, the whole community is like, wow, that's awesome. What endurance. But what about Jesus. Jesus takes the entire burden of humanity's sins and death upon his back. And he didn't back down. It's a miracle. It is grace that he went to the cross. It's grace that he stayed on the cross. The endurance of Jesus on the cross 
finishing what needed to be done. What passion, what endurance, how wonderful Jesus is. Remember, one of my goals this morning is that we would worship Jesus. That we would leave in all courageous. He's so courageous. He's, he's the courageous king, but he's also the humble king. He's our humble king. How do we know that he's the humble king? Well, verses 1 through 5 in the passage we just read, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble. Can we all say humble? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of a burden. So in this passage, why is Jesus insistent about riding a donkey? On one hand, it's very simple. It's very simple why he's riding a donkey, because he's getting ready to fulfill prophecy. The gospel writer himself quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah here. Now, who's Zechariah? Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet who's writing to God's people who have just come out of exile, 70 years of exile. They're on their way back to Jerusalem, and the people of God are, are in this place longing for, well, when is, when is God going to restore the kingdom? When is he going to restore the kingdom? And so Zechariah writes this. And Zechariah writes this, and here's Matthew, who's telling us what the crowds do, what Jesus does, what the disciples do. And Matthew actually inserts himself in the story and says, yeah, yeah, what we're seeing here, this is what was spoken of. He's the Messiah. He's the one who comes on a donkey. He's the humble one. But there's really more here. There's really more here. Here's my favorite definition of of humility in the entire Bible. All right, so hold on to this. It's in Philippians chapter 2. This very famous passage. This is one of the best definitions of humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Can we all say humility? Humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So take, put that aside in your brain real quick, because we're going to jump to another passage, but I want that definition of humility in your mind as we read a part of Luke's account of the, 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 the triumphant procession. In Luke 19, as Jesus is riding the donkey, verses 41 through 44, this is what it reads. As he pro- approached Jerusalem and the city, he wept. He wept. He, he's, he's, not just ter- he's not just shedding little tears here. The Greek there is that he's wailing. Jesus is wailing, he's weeping over it. Verse 42, and he said, if you, he's speaking to Jerusalem and his people, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
the, the, the crowds had been shouting out, peace in the highest, he's peace in heaven. And he's going to Jerusalem, which is called the city of peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes, verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So what's Jesus talking about? Jesus is actually predicting that in, in AD 70, the Romans come in and they completely destroy Jerusalem. Red, led by, I don't know if you guys, you know, Titus, the Roman general Titus comes in. And the Jews had been seeking this, this, uh, this earthly peace, this earthly revolt. They revolt against the, the, the Romans. The Romans says, enough is enough. They send Titus to come in there. And they, they, they form this embankment around the Jews in Jerusalem, bring him to the, the, on the brink of starvation. They finally break through the Jewish defenses and they, they annihilate everyone, man, woman, and children include the destruction of the temple. That happens in A.D. 70, roughly 30 to 40 years after Jesus is, is saying this. Jesus knows what the agony that is approaching Jerusalem, his people. He knows that this same people who are shouting Hosanna will within a week will be shouting crucify him. Crucify him. He sees their fickleness. He knows their rejection. He knows that they're really just worshiping Jesus right now, some of them, because they think he's going to come bring this social, you know, this earthly kingdom to order. And all of that's going on. Jesus sees all of that. And he's on the way to Jerusalem, think point one, with all the things that are coming his way. And why is he weeping? What's on his mind? I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. One, I'm probably running away from Jerusalem. But if that, I, what, what I'm having to experience, that's what's on my mind. But what's on, my, what's on the mind of Jesus? The pain, the agony, and the suffering, not of his, not of the, his own suffering, which is the most cosmic suffering of the whole universe, He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about the suffering of his people. Do you guys get that? Do you see the humility of Jesus? Jesus is mourning the death and destruction of his own people. In the face of his greatest trial, he's weeping for the upcoming pain of his own people. He is truly a humble king. Amen? Wow. I'm going to read... Philippians 2 again, but I'm going to add a word in it. You'll see it in just a second. Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility he counted others more significant than himself. He looked not only to his own sufferings and trials and pain, but also to the suffering, trials, and pains of others. Jesus is our humble king. Wow. He's a, he's a courageous king. I mean, there's no one else in the universe who's more courageous than Jesus. There's no one more humble than Jesus. Number three, Jesus is the most high king. 
He's the king of kings. Notice, in just a second, we'll read a couple verses here, but I want you to pay attention to even the language of supremacy that Jesus is given. Matthew 21, 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Can everyone say highest? Highest. Luke 19, 37 through 38. This is Luke's version. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had been seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Both those terms, highest, that Luke and Matthew use, they're terms of rank. They're saying, Jesus is the highest. He deserves the highest praise because he's the highest God. There's a, a, a term that we use in contemporary culture. It's called the goat. Who's heard that term before? The goat. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? It, what does it stand for? The greatest of all time, right? And it usually gets thrown into sports circles, but there's all these debates and people love to talk about who's the goat of basketball, who's the goat of golf, and, and people just love to debate it and talk about who's the greatest. It is the, it's the term of utmost highest respect and honor given for any field, right? Jesus is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. Amen? Come on, that's right, David. But it's not just in their words. We see their words displaying supremacy, but their actions show supremacy. They're waving. What are one of the things that they wave? They're waving these palm branches. And I, I, I shared a little bit about this last year, but I think it's worth repeating. These weren't just these arbitrary Macy's Day Parade. Yay, you know, happy, all right? Like there's meaning behind the palm branches, all right? It was a sign of Jewish and Roman nationalistic pride. In effect, when, when God's people were waving the, the palm branches, they were declaring, you are the hope of Israel. You are the hope even of the whole Roman Empire. You alone, Jesus, you alone are the highest. Very treasonous, very revolutionary actions, by the way. Lord, not my political party, not my, 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 my social caused demonstration, not my, my stream of, of denomination. No, Jesus, you are the greatest. You are the hope. That's what they were. He was the highest. God most high. Which, think about the last two years of our, our global society. I'll, I'll propose to you, this is the greatest lesson of the last two years globally that everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And the quote, the kind of paraphrase, Hebrews 12, the only thing that cannot be shaken and will never be shaken is the kingdom of God. Isn't that been the lesson that we've been learning the past two years? And there's, there's nothing wrong with with having political preferences or social awareness or put, you know, believing in the scientific community and having denominational streams. Like, there's nothing wrong with those. But if, if there's been one lesson the past two years is that we can only put our trust in the unshakable King Jesus. Amen? He's the God most high. 
So let's recap. Jesus is the courageous king. He's the courageous king who endures the cross, who perseveres through the cross. Number two, he's the most humble king. Even in his greatest suffering, he's thinking about us. He's weeping. He's, he's thinking about his people. Number three, he is the king. He, our king most high. And then lastly, last point, Jesus, and we sang about this, he's the worthy king. He's, if we looked at all these various revelation of who Jesus is, we land on this final truth. Jesus is worthy of it all. The actions and extravagant worship that we see make one thing abundantly clear. He's the worthy king. How is he worthy? In what ways do we see him being worthy of? For starters, notice what they're laying down on the donkey and even on the road. What do they lay down? They're, they're taking their, their coats, their tunics, Right? Again, that's, that's a detail that we can easily overmiss, but for Jews of that day, they didn't have 10 coats, they had one coat. It was literally their most personal possession. It's their, their closest to them. And coats, jackets were so personal, they were such an inalienable possession. It says in the law of Moses that if you gave up your coat, and you're, you were poor and you gave up your coat to pay a debt, that the, the person who you gave it to actually had to return it back to you by the end of the night because you were too cold. That's how important this possession was. And here they are laying down their most important possessions, the most, one of their most personal resources. They're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of everything personal to me. Is Jesus worthy of your possessions? Is he worthy of our resources? Jesus was also worthy of our affections. What did the disciples and the crowds do? They shouted, they rejoiced, they sang, they danced. They expressed their affections with verbal and active movement because he was worthy of it. It's amazing what the sports and entertainment culture will do to display what, you know. It's amazing what, what gets them so excited. We can take a rubber ball and we can throw it through a rubber hoop and 100,000 fans will jump up in elated, blissful joy. Yeah? I do it. We've all done it. We can show joy in that way. Our, we lift up our hands. We, we shout for joy. We rejoice. If material, temporal things can garner such affection and praise, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Is he worthy of your affections? There's a lot of things he's worthy of, but there's one more I'll point out in this passage, and that is he, he's worthy of our reputation. In Luke's account, we find out another group of people within the crowd. Who's the one people that aren't really happy a lot in the, in the Gospels? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, Luke 19 39, 40 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Can you picture their angry faces? Their frustration of what they're seeing. In John's gospel, we, you can read earlier that the, the Pharisees have already declared, if anyone confesses, Jesus is the Christ, they are removed from the synagogue. John chapter nine. 
And they actually did that. There's a man born blind. He gets healed. He confesses Christ as the Lord. They remove, they cast him out of the synagogue, which is the greatest tribal identity that they probably had as Jews was the synagogue, their religious culture. So there's already the threat among the religious leaders. Confess Christ as the Lord, the king, you're removed. And threat of, of, of what that, that, that reputation, what do we see the disciples and the crowds doing? They don't care. They're worshiping Jesus. They don't care about what others think. A major contributing factor to us withholding praise and affection is self-consciousness. What will others think if I raise my hand? What will others think if I shout and praise? What if we dance before the Lord? What are, what, that's, that's a little crazy. But when you get a revelation of how worthy Jesus is, you're becoming God-conscious and less self-conscious. You really stop caring what others think. You just want to express your love, your affection, your devotion to Jesus. Will you declare Jesus as worthy this morning, church? I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. And as a, a part of the way we're, we're going to conclude our service, uh, I'm actually going to invite all of us to stand up. And we are going to read, I'm going to read out loud what is happening in heaven right now. We sang about it in one of the last songs. But in Revelation chapter 4, This is the eternal worship song that is taking place right now. It's happening right now in heaven. Now, for those that are in heaven currently right now, they're behind the veil. They have this full, holistic, sensory ability to behold the glory of the Lord. So, admittedly, we, we're not there yet. So, there is an element of faith right now. There's an element of like, Ben, Pastor Ben, I, I'm not seeing anything. I'm not maybe feeling anything. So there's an element of faith. And here's the, here's, here's the beauty of worship on this side of eternity. That this is the only type of worship, faith-filled worship that you will offer on this side of eternity. When you can't see, when you can't, you can't feel it. It's when we press it and, and we declare he's worthy when we don't feel like it, when we can't see it, but we just know by faith that in heaven he's surrounded by the angels, the elders. They're, be, they're, they're getting a revelation of who he is. So I'm gonna read through Revelation 4, and as I read through this, I just wanna invite you, even right now, you can lift up your hands, but I want you to offer up worthy praise of Jesus. And then we're gonna continue to worship. Revelations 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he sat there, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of the emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden 
crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and they say, verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, Lord, they were created and they exist. Jesus, this morning we worship you. We have one desire this morning, and that is to pour out our adoration and affection on you, Jesus. You are, Lord, you are the courageous king who did not back down. You are the humble king who thought of your people on the road to Calvary. You are the God most high. And therefore, you are worthy of it all, Jesus. Jesus.